By this time in the retreat, you might be <clears throat> tempted to think that we've said everything that it is possible to say about aversion, but you underestimate me. <laughs> so this evening, I would really like to reflect on and focus the talk on the theme of the journey from aversion to kindness. Recently, very recently, I came across an article about a boarding school in this country that cares for quite young children that no one else, it seems, can care for. And these children are deemed to be not only unmanageable, but often even unlovable. And many of these children, as the article reported, had been through 10, 20, 30, one had even been through 70 foster places, placements before ending up at the school. But despite the best efforts and the commitment that many of the foster parents offered to these children to try and provide them uh, with a life of safety and care, at times the level of rage and fear in these, held within these young bodies and minds <coughs> was often too much or even too dangerous for these foster parents to embrace. And all of these children shared something in common. They had all been abused in some way, emotionally, psychologically, sexually. All had been taught throughout their lives that they were worthless, unlovable, without value, <coughs> and that the world essentially was a dangerous place to be in. And as the article talked about, the staff at the school knew that the slightest trigger, and sometimes not even any perceptible trigger, these children could erupt into an uncontrollable rage and violence that was so dense and blind that they would harm themselves or <coughs> harm anyone near to them. And at each of these incidents, uh, over time, the staff had learned that it would require three staff members to hold and gently restrain the child and talk them through the rage in voices of calmness, of quietness, talk them through about what the child was experiencing in those instances. The restraint was apparently needed, is apparently needed to protect the child from their own violence and to provide a sense of sanctuary and safety. But the aim is for, apparently the aim, the stated aim is for the child to begin to understand that they are valued, even at these worst moments, that they would not be marginalized, they would be not be ostracized but more importantly, to provide a language, almost a vocabulary to experience. To provide a language and a vocabulary to experience. 
the staff would talk in the article about the offering of love as being so important, but also the acknowledgement that love was not enough, that there also needed to be the learning of and the commitment to walking new pathways of relationship with themselves and with, with others. And ultimately, the staff acknowledged, yes, it provided sanctuary, but the most important of their direction, the most important aspect of the direction they had was the attempt to transform hatred into love. And as the director said, the prognosis would often seem to be very full of despair and hopelessness, but said they had to keep alive in themselves the possibility of a hopeful outcome, and that their work was to embrace the tiny possibilities of emotional growth. And this is a very extreme story, but the journey from aversion to kindness, the journey from despair to a sense of possibility, I think is really no easy journey for any of us. And we know in our own experience that that journey from aversion to kindness involves much more than just a well-intentioned love and care, but that in that journey for us, that we are asked to make a very profound commitment to to learn what it means to walk new pathways, to essentially that journey is about changing the shape of our heart and the shape of our mind. Uh, 2,600 years ago, the Buddha identified aversion as being one of the most persistent and pernicious emotions that debilitated life. In fact, even went so far as to speak about the power of aversion to poison our relationships with ourselves, our relationship with others, and our relationship with life itself. That aversion had the power to leech joy and happiness from life, to estrange us, really, from others, and to make us almost a stranger to ourselves. And in that time, the Buddha identified aversion as being one of the leading causes of perpetuating suffering, as ways of harming ourselves and all too often leading to enormous destruction and harm in the world. And I think all of you who work in therapeutic environments know too well the power that aversion has when it is self-directed how it leads, can lead to very profound depression, to lack of self-worth, to hopelessness and bleakness. But I think we all get a little acquainted at least with the power of aversion in our own minds and lives. Sometimes the waves of aversion we see moving through our minds in just little kind of quiet whispers of judging, comparing, resisting. Sometimes the waves of aversion come are very big waves, the shouts of blame and ill will. But isn't it interesting how aversion always has kind of the same outcome? 
I mean, we don't have aversion attacks and then feel very peaceful and terrific, you know, and that was just a great moment, you know. Always has the same outcome, the sense often that the residues that follow are often ones of guilt, of alienation, of feeling very isolated, of agitated, feeling agitated. 2,600 years ago, in really focusing on this quality of aversion, um, this powerful force, the Buddha also very clearly said that hatred is never, never ceases by hatred, that hatred only ceases through love, that this is an eternal law. And I'm sure that we, too, start to realize that Aversion doesn't end just because we want it to go away, as human as that is. Aversion can't end just by imagining or wishing, imagining how we should be, the big should. And aversion certainly doesn't end through willpower. That in very real ways, aversion only does end by love and by kindness but by the love and the kindness that is born of understanding the landscape of aversion. To know it really deeply, to be willing to know aversion really well, even though everything in us you know, tells us to kind of turn away from it or pretend it's not there or explain it in some way. But this is something that is so important, I think, for us to learn to befriend with mindfulness, but equally to befriend the commitment to cultivate and walk new pathways in all the moments that aversion rises in our hearts. I mean, in the past, as most of you know, I mean, there were, you know, whole arrays of techniques that promoted getting rid of aversion by venting it, you know. And so, you know, there were places all around the world where, you know, everybody would merrily together, you know, be punching pillows and screaming and enacting aversion out. And now we know um, that all this catharsis tends to do, apart from exhausting us, is to provide a temporary relief from the stress and the tension of aversion, but that it also, that that catharsis and that venting, simply reinforces our capacity for aversion and ill will. We just get better at it. And it becomes more of a default mechanism. Now, we can easily be prone to dismiss small moments of aversion, of, you know, irritation, intolerance, a little grumpiness, you know, minor judgments, you know. We can tend to dismiss these small moments as being, you know, pretty unimportant, you know, if you're standing waiting to do your dishes behind the most mindful dishwasher ever born, you know, and you find yourself just, you know, slightly 
it's just slightly impatient and judgmental. You know, we think, oh, it doesn't really matter. You know, you know, if we find ourselves, you know, just kind of, uh, you know, just uh, watching people and finding ourselves, you know, kind of picking out the you know, their their bad taste in socks and, you know, and, you know, all these things that we can do, you know, think, oh, it doesn't really matter. And yet those are the moments, actually, that are the approachable moments. In many ways, the small moments are aversion, are the ones that we can really find the ability to begin to explore this landscape of aversion that in the big moments feels too overwhelming and too dense to explore. We can begin to find the capacity to acquaint ourselves with the territory of aversion. In the Tibetan tradition, and I'm slightly paraphrasing this, it, it, it says... Do not take lightly these small moments of aversion, believing they do little harm. Even a tiny spark can set alight a mountain. It's as if these small moments of irritation and these very powerful moments of ill will or rage, it's almost as if they're the different arms and legs of one body. Now, part of mindfulness, as I understand it, is learning to embrace the whole of our emotional landscape with kindness, with curiosity, with acceptance, with compassion. You know, and I think in this teaching, you know, we we sometimes hear words like equanimity or non-attachment or non-identification, And we could easily imagine that mindfulness is meant to create a kind of emotional landscape of flatness or indifference or a kind of emotional desert, which is hardly a very appealing prospect, is it? And I think really nothing is further from the truth. Because if anything at all, the work of mindfulness is to foster emotional wakefulness and emotional freedom. It's very clear, I'm sure, to all of us that as human beings, we are emotional beings. And that emotion is what gives texture and color to our lives. And it's emotion that is the base and the root of all of our relationships both the difficult ones and the lovely ones. It's emotion that enables our capacity for empathy, for connectedness, for intimacy, for generosity, for love. And there are countless, countless lovely emotions that we experience in the spectrum in our minds and hearts. Happiness, joy, appreciation, care, sensitivity. And there's a lot of difficult emotions in the same spectrum. Fear and ill will and resentment and jealousy and guilt. Now, first of all, I think in this work, it's very, very important that we don't classify this emotional spectrum in terms of good and bad emotions. It's very important, probably obvious. 
But I think instead we're invited to bring a different framework into this spectrum, to really look within our emotional worlds and to look with it, see within it what is it within our emotional landscape that leads to suffering, to struggle, and what is it within that same emotional landscape that leads to the end of suffering and struggle? What is it in our emotional landscape that leads to the perpetuation of fear and isolation and despair? And what is it within our emotional landscape that, le- that heals sorrow, that heals struggle? I think this is the starting point of emotional wakefulness and of emotional freedom. And I feel they're really important questions to ask of ourselves. And in my mind, that this is the only framework that matters. And it's really an investigation of the moment, moment to moment. And it's that framework of understanding what leads to the perpetuation of suffering and what leads to it, its end, it's that framework that is the basis or the foundation of wise response. To know what it's really helpful for us to cultivate and to develop, and to know what it's really helpful for us to understand and to release. Now, as long, clearly as long as we live, we will be emotional beings. And this is the most pivotal, I think, of all landscapes to be mindful in. You know, there's a, a Zen story of, you know, a very esteemed Zen teacher whose son had died. And his disciples came and they saw the Zen master weeping inconsolably. And the disciples asked the Zen master, they said, why are you crying? Haven't you taught us that all of life is, an imp- is impermanent, that all of life is illusory? And he answered, yes. He said, but the death of a child is the saddest of all of that illusory life. You know, as human beings, there will be times when we are sad, when we grieve, when our hearts feel broken, when there is anxiety. If we couldn't feel those emotions, we could also not feel and experience the emotions of love and kindness and empathy. It's like they have to, they are part of one, one package. There will also be times in our lives when we experience tremendous happiness and joy and delight. And the truth is that none of these emotions are in any way an obstacle to emotional freedom. None of these emotions are an obstacle to equanimity or to balance. But now I want to look at aversion. What about aversion? How do we understand aversion? And why is it aversion so identified not only in Buddhist teaching but in many therapeutic approaches as the outstanding quality that can poison life and our relationship with it? Why is it given so much attention? You know, you look at mindfulness-based applications and how much attention is given 
to this quality or this experience and power of aversion. And I would ask, is aversion an emotion or is aversion a reaction? Now, again, I want to go a little territory here which is quite delicate territory because I would personally like to make a distinction between anger and aversion. And this is something we need to be incredibly careful with. But I think it's an important distinction to make because so often they are lumped together, you know, and almost used words that are used almost interchangeably, anger and aversion. I want to unpack that a little bit. For example, we're often taught that anger is bad. It's unacceptable. Um, It is almost taboo. Now, the children in the story that I started this talk with, why would they not be angry? Why would they not be angry? At a world that had abused them so terribly, would we ask of these children that they be accepting, accommodating, allowing? Anger, in my understanding, is at times a response to the unacceptable. Small children do not and could not know what to do with that response, with that anger in the powerlessness of their lives. So they vent and or suppress it. Yet the reality remains in this world, in our lives, the reality remains that there is much that is unacceptable. There is much that is unjust. There is much that is terrible in life. When you look on your television screen and see some terrible image of oppression or injustice or cruelty, what is the response you have? When you see that on the streets that we live in, what is the response that you have? I don't even know if the anger is the right word for it even, but that bubbling up of that feeling of just this is unacceptable. Now, the Dalai Lama has once once made this distinction. He says, anger can be the beginning of powerful altruistic acts of healing and compassion. Faced with the unacceptable in any form, injustice, oppression, cruelty, we often do need to know how to say no. But then from that place of saying no, not turning away, but turning towards and that's when anger can begin can be the beginning of powerful altruistic acts of healing because we turn towards the unacceptable and act from the place that is dedicated to bringing suffering to an end sometimes we get a little angry with ourselves you know with our own at times seemingly ingrained habits of of compliance or you know or whatever habits they are that we know are really not so helpful to us and it is sometimes that same stirring 
that this are in in the heart, that this is unacceptable, that really leads us to set our feet on new pathways. Sometimes anger is what leads us to make and set appropriate boundaries. You know, the worst thing anybody ever, ever said to me on a retreat was when a woman told me that the practice had helped her to bear an abusive relationship. And I thought, well, this is not how, this is not what the practice is about. It's not about bearing the unacceptable or somehow finding the, the kind of armor to, to so no longer be profoundly touched by the unacceptable, by injustice, by cruelty. We need to be profoundly touched. We need to be shaken to the core, in a sense, because that's where we begin to act in a commitment to end suffering. But we do need to be so careful with this territory because we would, I think, and I, we really do, would like to think that all of our anger is righteous. You know, we'd really like to think that, you know. I'm perfectly fine, but this world is really a problem, you know. And we would really like to think that every, every, every stirring of anger is totally righteous and we know it just becomes a habit. So what is the difference? I, I think we need to be so careful because the more appropriate question to hold alongside feelings of anger or that stirring in the heart, the more appropriate question to hold alongside is it, how are we responding? Where is this feeling leading? Is it compounding suffering or is it ending it? Because it's a really quick slide from anger to aversion. You know, it's a really quick slide. And I think part of the practice and part of emotional wakefulness is not having that slide from anger into aversion. And that slide can be gross and it can be subtle. But it's good to notice how aversive we can actually be to anger for a whole lot of different reasons, you know. You know, as children, we're often told, you know, that, you know, nice people don't get angry, you know, and it's very shameful to be angry, you know, and, you know, calm down and get sent to your room and all the rest of it. You know, and often we come into kind of spiritual circles and we get a whole new portfolio of expectations, you know, of kindness and peace, and we can misuse them to act in the same shaming way. You know, oh, I have this feeling, oh, no, a really spiritual person wouldn't feel that. You know, or a really mindful person certainly wouldn't feel that, you know. And so we kind of turn the practice, or the practice gets co-opted into this whole inner judgment structure and becomes a new kind of criteria for acceptability or unacceptability. So we need to be very careful. So anger, I would say, and I don't even know that anger is the right word even, you know, for that surge of just unacceptable. I don't even, don't even know if we have the right word for it. But anger, I'm going to use the word anger, it's our first response to the actuality of injustice. Aversion to me is a different creature. Because aversion, rather than meeting actuality and staying connected with the actuality of the moment, aversion tends to be much more the denial of what is. 
the pushing away, the turning away from, rather than the turning towards. And if anger is going to be the forerunner of compassion, it always needs to be the turning towards. If anger is going to be then the forerunner of of denial and resistance and blame, it's going to be because of the turning away from. Now, aversion, in my understanding, I think most of us have plenty of opportunities to explore aversion in our lives. I don't know about you, but I've had a lot. Um, you know, and what I understand is it's a very complex state. And I really think of aversion as a state rather than as a singular emotion. That it's a state that holds strands of frustration, of sadness, of resistance, of disappointment. And I think aversion holds a really powerful strand of anxiety. Now, in Buddhist psychology, aversion is seen to be the most powerful manifestation of fear. Isn't that interesting? The most powerful manifestation of fear. Now, aversion, of course, as a state, has some a pretty immediate and noticeable effects. You know, and one of them, one of the immediate ones is to lead to the resisting of the experience of the moment, to try to rid of it, avoid it, overcome it, or suppress it, and to be in an ongoing state of argument with our life and the experience of it. And if none of these strategies work, through other version of trying to get rid, overcome, transcend, suppress, what happens? We sink into numbness, hopelessness, despair, and depression. Sounds a pretty bleak picture. And the truth is that there isn't actually much that's joyful about aversion, but it's not hopeless. It's certainly not hopeful, hopeless. Now, the practice of mindfulness, in my understanding, is beginning to understand that the aversion, like any state, that seems so solid can actually be unpacked and understood. It's also very important to remember that in this practice, kindness is a verb. It's being kind with, being kind in relationship with. And kindness is actually born in the very place that aversion lives, where kindness feels so lacking. Aversion is part of our reactive structure to the unpleasant. In fact, it's a reaction to suffering, the suffering that we don't know how to understand or embrace. And the reaction of aversion can become so familiar and habitual that it feels to be pretty automatic. You know, just the slightest hint, clue of the unpleasant, and you can feel the wall start to arise as a a default mechanism. And when we feel, you know, when we do feel so estranged from our capacity to respond to the unpleasant and the painful, when we feel estranged from our capacity to find new pathways of meeting this fragile and unpredictable and ever-changing and uncertain life with kindness, 
when we feel estranged from that capacity for kindness, then I think aversion deepens into self-hatred, into despair, and into numbness, and very deep depression. Now, from that perspective of evolution, aversion had its roots in a much-needed self-protection mechanism. I mean, in ancient times, you know, we, we needed to be hyper-alert to our environment. You know, the sound outside the cave could indeed be a tiger. It wasn't just something we were imagining. To many of the predators that we shared our little world with, really, we weren't much more than supper. We needed to be hyper alert to the possibility of physical injury. You know, we didn't, there weren't walk in clinics and a toothache could kill you. We needed to be hyper alert to the threat of others, all competing for the same water hole. And when there was no protection, what did we do in those times? We ran back to the sanctuary as a cave. You know, as, as part of human, as part of the human psyche, Anxiety and aversion are about as ancient as the human psyche. And there's plenty of evidence to tell us how hardwired that aversion and self-protection mechanism is within, our, within us. But, as we all know, times have moved on. We are no longer protecting our caves as such. We're no longer protecting our water hose. What are we protecting now? Our sense of self. Me. The fear of injury lies at the heart of aversion. The fear of injury. And we can be fearful and anxious about a lot in the life we live, and we can be fearful and anxious about a lot of the life that we imagine that we could live. And there's a certain reality to this, you know, I mean, let's get real here, you know, we, we live in a very uncertain world we cannot control, we can't control other people and how they're going to react to us or treat us. Actually, you know, there's really quite a lot to be fearful of. You know, our bodies are going to break down in ways that we can't predict. We, we do age. We do die. We can be afraid of losing people that we love. We can be afraid of failure. We can be afraid of making mistakes. We can be afraid of being criticized and rejected. We can be afraid of difficult emotions. We, I could go on and on. <laughs> I will go on and on. We're afraid of not having enough, of being hurt, of being ignored, of being isolated. You know, any of you with any familiarity with the Buddhist tradition know that it's incredibly good at making lists, you know. And, and the Buddha kind of summed up, you know, the world of human anxiety in the five great fears. Fear of death, fear, believe it or not, of public speaking. <laughs> Fear of not having enough. Fear of the loss of reputation, people thinking badly of us. And the fear of unusual mind states. Fear of going crazy. Fear of losing our mind. 
Now, the simple truth is that none of us totally avoid this list of experiences. We will meet, and we're all going to meet, our own measure of happiness and joy and delight in this life, and we're all going to meet our own measure of adversity and difficulty and sadness and disappointment. The many moments when life is not how we think it should be. Now this essentially, this fear of vulnerability, this essential fear of vulnerability, we tend to cloak with the armor of aversion. We cloak that fear of vulnerability with the armor of aversion. And the first great step, I think, in liberating the heart from the painfulness of aversion, because it truly is painful, is the willingness to embrace the vulnerability of our humanness. The willingness to embrace the reality of that vulnerability. Even to know that that vulnerability is not just ours. You know, when you think about it in, in MBSR and MBCT work, you know, when, when people come together in the groups, you know, the inquiry groups, isn't one of the great services of those groups and the great blessings of them is people suddenly discover they are not alone in their pain. That it is not just them. That it's not something to blame. That there is something within human experience about that fear of vulnerability and everything that can happen around it. In this human condition of being alive in an uncertain and uncontrollable world, we are asked to embrace actually what the Buddha called the first noble truth. You know, the simple fact that in this life, as much as there is delightful, there is unsatisfactoriness and pain. But aversion and resistance do not protect us. That's the hardest lesson to learn. That aversion and resistance do not protect us from pain. In fact, all they do is to make us agitated. You know, because aversion makes us very agitated, you know, about how to fix, how to get rid of, how to amend, how to make something different than it is. I think it was Freud who said neurosis is a refusal to embrace suffering. You know, the refusal to embrace the actuality of suffering. He also went went on, I think, to say at least these things get attributed, you know, that 25% of suffering in this life is unavoidable. You know, bodies doing what bodies do, loss, heartache. And 75% of suffering in this life is born of trying to avoid the first 25%. I think there's a lot of truth in that. There's a lot of truth in that. Now, we know in meditation, but we also know in mindfulness-based applications that the first big step a person makes in that practice and in this practice is the capacity to look pain and suffering in the eye fearlessly. To know pain as pain, to know suffering as suffering, without aversion or resistance, that's a huge leap. It's a huge leap for anyone to make. But it is the first great step that we make in the journey from aversion to kindness. 
learning to let go of the agitation that often takes the form of all of our stories and explanations and blame and judgment, to know the difference between pain and aversion, to know that aversion is a reaction to suffering and kindness is a response to suffering. And the one thing that we can be absolutely certain of in this life, that whatever adversity we meet in our bodies, in terms of pain or aging or illness, whatever adversity we meet in our hearts, in (coughs) disappointment, frustration, whatever adversity we meet in life, in terms of difficult events or loss, that adversity is only going to be compounded by aversion. We can count on it. Aversion is going to compound the suffering of adversity. And mindfulness is really the work of changing this tide of resistance to the current of meeting with. That's the whole job of mindfulness, is to change that tide of resistance to the current of meeting with. Now, many people really surprise themselves with in discovering just how powerful that shift can be. What a difference, a radical transformation it can bring to turn that tide of resistance into the current of meeting with. People are sometimes astounded by the doorways of kindness and understanding that are open through that shift in relationship. Instead of fleeing, avoiding, worrying, ruminating, discovering the seeds of and the capacity for inclusiveness, softening, mindfulness, how that begins to blossom. The thing that adversity, uh, aversion does is that it really actually makes us or or sends us into this most uncomfortable marriage with whatever we are averse to. We're married to it. What we actually want to get rid of, we end up being married to through aversion. Isn't that amazing? It has completely the opposite effect of what we would like it to have. We We would like aversion make things go away. Instead, it makes things stay. Isn't that interesting? Completely opposite effect. We can be very slow learners about this. Havel, the playwright statesman, he once said that hatred has much in common with desire. That is the fixation on others. Sometimes it's the fixation on things we don't like about ourselves. The dependence on them, and in fact the delegation of a piece of one's own identity to them. The hater is tied equally to the object of his or her hatred. Tied. An example of this, you know, some years ago I met a woman who'd been mugged you know, quite violently, and the effect of that mugging was for her actually increasingly to be terrified of actually going outside on her own, doing anything of her own. And she said that she found herself thinking endlessly about that experience going over and over in her mind. What if she'd just taken that different route home? What if she'd reacted differently? What if she'd been in some other place? Why did this happen to her? Why would this person choose her? And in in, in an event, she realized 
the mugger, she had invited the mugger into her heart and it had taken over her life. And then she said when she could understand that, that she realized the only way that she was going to find freedom was when she actually stopped hating this. Didn't mean she had to like it. Didn't mean she had to, uh, you know, be incredibly generous and saintly. But to stop hating it was the first step out of her door, she said. Now, kindness in this journey, it's very important to accept that kindness is not something a fortunate few people are born with and everybody else is dispossessed. Kindness is born of what we do with our mind and kindness is born of what we do with our attention. Kindness has something to do with how we pay attention. Learning, kindness is learning to be still and to pause a little bit in the midst of aversion and resistance when everything in us is telling us to flee. To pause and to be still because then we begin to have a relationship, a relatedness to that moment and to whatever that moment is bringing. And we can be sure that whatever is being brought is asking for the kindness of our attention and listening. And I think when we learn to be still and to pause in the midst of those waves of aversion, we begin to uncover our mind's inherent capacity to heal, to change, to grow, to confidence, and to be able to offer sanctuary to ourselves, to offer for our minds, our hearts to be a sanctuary for us. To read you a poem, if I may. It says, there is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole, while learning to sing. Perhaps the most lethal way that aversion can be directed is to ourselves. Telling and retelling the story of imperfection, of unworthiness, of unlovability, the aversion that we can feel for our own bodies and minds, the stories of inadequacy that we tell ourselves, or the stories of inadequacy that have been told to us by others. The familiar voice of the inner critic, the judge, scolding, blaming, condemning, this is like aversion at its worst. And when we listen to those stories or tell those stories often enough, of course, they seem to become a truth. 
What is the reality? They are just a story. It's just a story. It is just thought. And neither the thought nor the story is the primary problem. The belief and the identification with the story of aversion is the problem. Because it is that belief and the identification that invests truth into what is actually a story. Now, the foundation of all kindness is really learning what it means to be a friend to ourselves. And the foundation for discovering the freedom from aversion is actually learning to be kind with aversion. Learning to be kind with aversion. That aversion, too, can be included in this, under this umbrella of mindfulness and kindness. To be interested in aversion, to know it, to see it, and you know, the more that you, it is difficult, we can only hate things from a distance. And that is what aversion does, it creates a distance, and we hate from a distance. When there is intimacy, that is where we learn about kindness and about love. And that is actually the work of mindfulness, is to be intimate with the moment. And to be intimate with some of these most difficult places that we are prone to disown or try to disown. Mindfulness learns, teaches us to soften. The Buddha once said in his teachings of kindness, he said, you can search the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you yourself, and that person cannot be found. That you yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe, deserves your unconditional love and affection. Now, this is not an invitation to start telling ourselves a different story. It's not an invitation to start telling ourselves a story of how terrific and amazing we are. Because we wouldn't believe it. You know, we just wouldn't believe it. But we are, with practice, learning, actually, to attend to ourselves in a different way. Rather than through the lens of blame and judgment and criticism, through the lens of care and kindness investigation, it's like we're learning a new language. Just as the children in the story I began with had to learn a new language of relatedness. It's like we are learning a new language, unfamiliar at first, the language of kindness, but that grows and thrives and matures through the attention that we give to it. Love, I think, and kindness is sometimes a simple willingness to attend wholeheartedly, to be present, to be committed to being present with our own and committed to our own well-being. Now, mindfulness is, of, is classically sometimes translated as remembering. And we remember many things. You know, we remember to be present. We remember to come back, all of these things. But I think as we attend to ourselves, our bodies and minds, as we attend and listen to stories of brokenness and incompleteness, we are learning to remember, too, that no story can possibly describe the potential 
and the fastness of the human heart. That no story can possibly be true if it excludes and ignores the potentiality for kindness, for generosity, for patience, for forgiveness, those seeds that lie within all of us. And really, I think that the response of mindfulness or the response of kindness is really to commit to and to nurture what heals rather than what destroys. There's an old Native American story about a chief walking with his grandson beside a river and, and wondering what he could pass on in terms of wisdom to his grandson. And walking beside the river, he said to his grandson, he says, it's as if there are two wolves within me. There's the wolf that is warlike and aggressive and hateful, and there's the wolf that longs for for peace and and for connectedness. And the grandson says to his his grandfather, he says, well, which wolf is going to win? And he said, it depends on which one I feed. Depends on which one I feed. And do we feed what destroys or do we feed what heals? I'm going to just sum up some of, I think, some of the primary steps in this journey from aversion to kindness. One of them, I think, is, is very much this really critical lesson, crucial lesson of learning that we can actually provide sanctuary for ourselves. Sometimes the sanctuary is in our attentiveness. Sometimes it's in metta. Sometimes it's just simply in the commitment to well-being. That just as the children in this boarding school could be held in gentle arms by people who could help them to trace with language the landscape of their rage and terror, we need to learn how to be a guardian of our own minds. How to be a guardian of our own hearts. Part of that is not mistaking our stories to be the truth, to find the language to describe our experience. This is what we're doing in this practice. We're finding a language to describe our experience, to know it, to befriend it, and to come into that knowing with confidence. We learn to find and to trace and to be interested to know the body of aversion in the body. You know, to really trace the impact of aversion, to know how it feels, how we sense it, how we know it, to know that we can touch that aversion in the body with kindness and with compassion, with mindfulness. We need to learn to listen to the waves of aversion, aversion large and small, and to learn actually that we can be still. We can find our ground amidst those waves. And we can withdraw our consent. And I think this is so important in that journey. Withdraw our consent. Because what you dwell upon will grow. You know, And if we dwell upon aversion with thought, with story, with history, with future, it will grow. And there's something about learning to withdraw the consent because we know not out of aversion, but because we know where it goes. And we know that it perpetuates suffering and we commit ourselves to ending suffering. 
We're asked to find the courage in this journey to embrace life as it is and not as we think it should be. The times of delight and the times of difficulty to find the steadfastness of heart that can know suffering as suffering and to know that if we did not have the capacity to feel pain, we would not have the capacity to love. To cultivate the wisdom to discern the difference between the actuality of the event that is occurring and our story about the event. And we're asked to learn to cultivate in this journey towards kindness, really a non-clinging, non-dwelling mind that is really committed to walking the pathways of kindness and compassion. And I think this is a journey of the moment. You know, and it really is a journey moment to moment. I just want to end with a poem, a short poem by Rumi. Today, like every other day, we wake up empty and scared. Don't open the door of your study and begin reading. Take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the earth. So if we have just a moment, quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.